for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is indeed near. A day of darkness and of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the dawn spreads on the mountains, a great and strong army. There is nothing like it from old, and after it is nothing, we will begin for generations to come. Before them, a fire devours, and behind them, a flame burns. Like the Garden of Eden is the land before them, and after them, it is like a desolate desert, and nothing can escape them. Like the, like the appearance of horses is their appearance. Like, like the horsemen, they run, like the sound of chariots on the tops of the mountains. They, they leap about like the sound of a sound of a flame of fire devouring stubble. What word is that? Okay, I don't know that word honestly. Um, like a strong arm, like a strong army arranged in rows for battle before, from before them, nations writhe, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty warriors. They scale the walls like men of war. Each goes on its own way, and they do not know and they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. They each goes on its own trail and through, and through the, the falling weapons, they are not halted. In the city, they rush forth on the walls that they run into the houses they climb up through the windows, they enter like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars have withheld their splendor. And Yahweh utters his voice before his army because his encampment is very large, strong is the one who carries out his decree. For great is the day of Yahweh and exceedingly fearful who can endure it. And even now declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, fasting and weeping and wailing. Rend your hearts and not your God and not your garments, and return to Yahweh your God, because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loyal love and relenting from harm. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, an offering and a libation for Yahweh your God. Sweet, thank you, Elliot. So before we get started, we're gonna pray and we're gonna get into it. Thank you, Lord, so much for this time. Thank you for just an opportunity that we have still to gather regardless of um, the particular conditions and, and the requirements and stuff, Lord. We are, we are thankful for the opportunity to still, uh, to be able to come together and just hear your word and to have an opportunity to understand what it is that you have for us today. Um, Lord, just please bless us as we delve into a particularly difficult text and be able to just spend some time in understanding uh, how it is that you would reveal uh, your will to us through this particular text. Please help us and keep us contrite that we would desire to understand who you are and that we would understand the ramifications that it has for us today. Uh, please bless us in this time. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So, let me ask a question. Does anyone remember uh, either the proposition from last week, just some of the rough kind of parts of Obadiah? And if anyone remembers the three points that we were taking away from Obadiah, you can just yell them out. You can refer to your notes if you have to. If not, I will help you out. Does anyone remember anything about Obadiah from last week? 
Yes. Right, good point. Do you remember what the answer was for that question? Like maybe a yes or a no. That's right, yeah, that's very good. So one of the points that Obadiah was mentioning was that if evil people enact violence, God would be a bad God if he did not deal with it. And the way that he deals with it in particular occasions is violently. Because basically God repays what everyone is owed legitimately. And his judgment is severe sometimes. So that's a huge point in Obadiah. That's actually the main point that we need to get to that's kind of going to jump off for today. So as we go into Joel, that idea of the judgment of God is going to hang over this for a piece of this. And so just like last week, because I understand last week, there's, there's probably a, a sense of it that's pretty intense. And so what I want to do with this sermon is, because it's also in some senses intense, I want to approach it a little bit differently, which is this way. I want to kind of treat this like a family meal. And what I mean is this, the, the three things we got to do is, first of all, we got to set the table, which is we just got to kind of put out the context and the, the points that we need to deal with and kind of prepare everything. Then after that, we're going to just step back and have that family time, have that kind of discussion that needs to happen, kind of just make it a little bit easier to, to kind of digest it and just look at it seriously because there's going to be some questions that are raised. And then once that part is done, we can kind of step back and we can start eating. We can actually like feast on the meal. Does that make sense? Is that all right? Okay. So as we do that, we're leaving Edom and we're going to another nation, Judah. And if you remember from the introduction to the minor prophets that we did a couple of weeks ago, in that introduction, there was that divided kingdom. If you remember, all of the Israelites are in two separate places now. Some are in the northern kingdom in Israel and some are in the southern kingdom in Judah. And Judah is where Jerusalem is. And that is where we are today. It's the next door neighbor of Edom. So it's like going from Arizona to California. We're not going far, but contextually and geographically, something different is happening there. And what's happening there when, when Joel brings us into this other nation specifically is that they're amidst serious immediate disaster. And that disaster is explained in verse four, chapter one, verse four, when it says this, what the cutting locust left the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So what happens is as soon as we get into Judah, there is a massive problem infestation with locusts. You guys want to know, know what a locust is? It's like a, it's like an animal. It's not really a cricket. It's like an insect, but they're bigger. Sometimes they fly and sometimes they hop but they're quite big. And when he says this, he's not talking like there's some kind of rat problem where they're just kind of around or there's a lot of them. He means something particularly devastating. In uh, Refugees International, a group that exists right now, they talked about how bad the locust problem is right now in Ethiopia and in Somalia. This is the way they described it. Desert locusts eat their body weight in food. Okay, so if a locust is like that big, 
That's how much they eat, okay, in any given day. And they follow that up by saying the average swarm carries approximately 150 million locusts. 150 million locusts. So when they get together, it is a massive cloud, like a cloud in the sky rolling by, and each one of them is eating as much as the size of this cloud, okay? And it's even worse than that because it says that they can move 100 miles a day, 100 miles a day. To give you an estimate, that's like from leaving the church here, going to San Diego. Once you reach downtown San Diego, that's the same distance, 100 miles. So they can go far and they can do a massive amount. And Joel, when he explains this, is saying it's not just one cloud, it's four different groups of locusts in different areas of the life cycle that are, that are coming through. And basically what anyone is leaving, you know, if one locust goes and a little bit is left, basically the next group is eating that. So it's just perpetual taking of their food. And it's not just the food because when the food is taken with something like a locust swarm, it gets even worse, which is uh, further explained from another kind of study that I did online. It says this, the scarcity of food that results from swarms attacking would make the spread of disease amongst the weakened people easier. So more people can get sick now that all of their food has been taken away. It would eliminate any trade from surplus food products. So all of the extra food that they make in a year, not just to eat, but to save to trade, all of that is gone now too. And so as a result of that, their economy is also wrecked. So something that's interesting is basically the fact that we just left Edom that's supposed to be this big destruction coming and we go into Judah where there's this particular devastation happening now. And so literally, as we would expect, the people are just freaking out. They're extremely worried and Joel knows that. And so he, he calls them together in Joel chapter one, verses 13 and 14, after he's described this locust swarm, he says, put on sackcloth and lamento priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now the whole point is that he recognizes that the people are nervous and they need to come before God. Because all of creation, as Joel has described, it seems to be worried about the situation. It says that the ground even is mourning. And it says, interesting enough, in verse, uh, down here somewhere, in verse 22, it says even the animals are worried. So this situation is so devastating that all of creation in this area of June is all asking the same thing. And Joel comes and says, well, we have to respond. Now, this is what the people are thinking. When Joel calls that, the people are thinking, okay, we are the people of God and God is going to help us out. So basically what we need to do to get God's help is we need to start doing good things, the things he wants us to do, okay? We got to do our offerings. We got to have a fast and we got to demonstrate how nervous we are. And, and that is going to elicit this response from God to deal with this locust situation. And that is not where Joel goes with this. Joel actually completely flips the script and he uses this 
illustration, this locust plague, this particular devastation to illustrate and describe another day that's coming. And he says that in verse 15 of chapter one. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And he continues that at the beginning of chapter two, where he continues to illustrate this idea. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be again. Now that idea of blackness and darkness is a literal reality. This is a really terrifying day that is coming in which it will be hard to even see anything. The sun will be gone, but it's also demonstrative of this idea that God constantly has when he talks about this that deals with calamity and worry. And he prefaced this entire prophecy at the very beginning of Joel in verse two, when he says, has such a thing ever happened in your days, in the days of your fathers? He asked that question, has this ever happened before? Let me ask you guys a question. If we're talking about locusts, have we ever come across in anywhere else in the Old Testament, a time where locusts showed up? Can anyone think of a time? One of the plagues in the Exodus. That's exactly right. So if that has shown up before, isn't it strange that he's asking like no one's ever seen this before? Because they have seen it before, right? All of their generations previous were part of the Exodus and they have seen it. It's been a long time, but their fathers, their ancestors have seen it. But that's not the point that Joel is making. He says, you've seen that terrible display. You've seen this terrible display, but you haven't seen anything like the day that is coming. It is so particularly terrifying that no illustration that they have comes close. It only gives them a fraction of how scary this future day is going to come. And the most terrifying mark of this day is that it's not a random day of destruction. It is the particular coming of the judgment of God. And he says that at the end of his prophecy, not the very end, close to the end in Joel chapter three, where he says this in verses 11 and 12, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. You know that valley of Jehoshaphat section? Jehoshaphat was a real person, but it also means something too. Jehoshaphat means the Lord will judge. So what Joel says here is that everyone will gather in the valley of the Lord judges and they're going to be judged. He's not talking about telling them the bad things they've done. It is executing punishment upon the people who have done wrong things. And he says, it's not Edom anymore. It's not even just Judah, but it's all of the surrounding nations. It's everyone is coming into this area. And it's going to be so devastating that even the current 
food shortages, even the current freaking out of creation, even the current survival mode everyone is going into is going to be nothing compared to this infinitely worse, terrifying day. Now that is the table set. Now let's step back for a sec, okay? And we need to step back for a sec because I understand where we are, okay? This is Friday night, youth group, just played some games and we just started celebrating a birthday and all of a sudden we're here talking about this terrifying day that's supposed to come. And the question that I realize we probably all have is, why are we hearing this? And the reason in part, because we kind of need to to build up to this idea, why is it that God is trying to explain this terrifying day and why are we talking about it in youth group? Part of the reason is because Because God is a personal God, all of his truth is not just good for us, but it it also warns us in a personal and deeply emotional way. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit. When I was a kid, I heard a lot of drug talks in my life. A lot of them. I heard them from teachers. I heard them from parents. I'm from Vancouver, which is part of the Pacific Northwest all along the coast. The Pacific Northwest kind of ends around Seattle and there's a terrible drug problem. Okay. And I never saw drugs. And so I wasn't necessarily worried, but one day when I was in public school, this woman came and she described the story of this young girl and how her whole life was ruined by drug use. Her, her physical body literally started deteriorating. Her, her mental state was like totally gone after only six months or so of using drugs and how she became homeless and how she was involved in abusive relationships. And it was absolutely awful. And then she ended it by saying, by the way, the woman I'm describing is my daughter. And I still remember it to this day specifically because my entire class saw me stand up, run to the door and actually pass out like right in the door. My teacher had to catch me. And there's something that hits when the story of something terrible is so personal and it's so direct and it's supposedly coming from a God who's supposed to love us and care for us. But sometimes he gets to those points where there's, warnings that have to be just as personal as his love for us. They have to be just as scary. And they hit when we understand how important they are. It's like the difference between watching a movie about World War II, a movie that's kind of showing you the heroic aspects of, you know, how, how cool these fights were and how dramatic these battles were. It's the difference between that and listening to an actual war veteran from World War II. And it's the same story, different impact. Because no actor or actress can demonstrate the kind of fear that this real war veteran who's actually there demonstrates. Where he can remember seeing people die in front of him and he can remember the smell and the texture in the air and just how frightening it was. And Joel, as the servant of God, is explaining it in a very similar way where he's telling the people, get out of your current moment and get into this moment because I need you to feel it for a sec. And the people fear it because in Joel chapter two, verses six, it says their faces grow pale too. It's being in that moment, in that 
personal place where he, he takes us out of that current moment, using as an illustration of a coming moment to make it real and lasting in our brains. When I was in seminary, I had an opportunity to help at a summer camp uh, called Camp Regen. Some of you have probably heard of it. Um, it's a big camp and we had to drive from New Mexico or uh, to New Mexico from Los Angeles from down here. And I remember when we were leaving Albuquerque, we'd already been on the road for like 14 hours. And as we're leaving, there's a massive rainstorm. And it's so bad that people are actually getting under overpasses to escape the rain because it, they couldn't drive. They could barely see in front of them. We were on a deadline, so we kind of immaturely went forward anyway, passing all these cars that are literally lined up, like waiting for whenever this is going to end. And we drive through this rain for about 20 minutes before we get through this fog. The rain stops and it's just fog. It's crazy, crazy fog. You can see even less in front of you than the rain. But that only lasts five minutes before we're finally free. And what I saw, I can only describe the best kind of image that I can think of is if you've ever seen Stranger Things, it looked like the upside down. It was black and you could barely see the mountains. And other than the headlights from our car and the lamps that were lining the road, the only reason we could see anything is because the lightning was going off everywhere around us, everywhere. And we kept going closer and deeper down this highway where lightning was going off everywhere. And it's cool for like five minutes and it's terrifying for like an hour because I give my phone to the buddy who's with me in this like 3000 pound Penske truck and he starts filming to the side. And I still have this video that I watch every once in a while that has the footage in front of us and then the mirror of the Penske truck beside us that has two mirrors, one to see kind of the immediate close side and then one to see the far back side of the truck, right? And as he films that side there with the mirror in the shot, you can see lightning constantly going at all three points. It had completely surrounded us. And when we were in that moment is like this moment that we see with Joel. And the, the point that he's getting at is this point that he makes in chapter two, verses 11, where he says this, if you think of this day, if you recognize it properly, you're going to ask this question, who can endure it? Who can get through this day? Who could bear the awesome weight and terrifying fear of this day? And that's this interesting hinge point that he reaches because what Joel is getting at with both of these things, with this immediate disaster and this coming disaster, is that something is wrong with the world. And this current problem gives you only a taste of the real problem that's coming on the horizon. We think the problem is what's going on here. And he's saying the problem is a day in which God has to deal with the consequences of sin and his might and power are going to be demonstrated on how serious the problem of sin has to end. The last day when all of sin will be sucked up and punished and dealt with for good. And it's going to be frightening. And so the question now is, is God just trying to scare us? Is that what this is about? Is God just trying to freak me out? 
Well, listen, if he was trying to freak you out for a reality that he was going to allow you to go into, he probably wouldn't tell you. God would just let it happen. There's no reason to give you a heads up. So then the question is, is God just trying to freak us out into heaven? Is God just trying to scare us? Is that the way he's going to get us to heaven? That he's just going to demonstrate this coming day that people would be motivated to come to him because they just don't want to be part of that day. That's a real question. That's a real way people try to tell people why they need to know God. Because you're just getting away from some terrible day that's coming. Maybe you've been to Santa Monica Pier like me, like the first time I came to Los Angeles, and I was so surprised at how many people are showing up, repent or die. There's just these big signs that they hold up. Is that the motivation that God has behind explaining this terrible day? And the best way that we can connect that with what Joel really wants is with this illustration. I don't know how many of you guys have been to a diamond store because none of you are married, I think. But if you've ever been to a diamond store, no one brings out the diamond on their hand and no one puts it on the counter to show you the diamond. Do you know what they do? What they do is they bring out a black velvet cloth. It's not big, but it's extremely dark. and It's extremely black. The blacker, the better. And they put that on the counter. Then what they do is they take their equipment, their little pincer things, and they get the diamond. And though it looks insignificant as it, it goes through the air, through the store, as soon as it lands on that black cloth and the light hits the diamond just right, it shines so brightly and begins to sparkle so specifically that you start to realize why it's worth so much money. Because that black velvet cloth started illuminating it to show you its value. And when God is demonstrating this day of the Lord, it's like a presentation of this very, very, very black velvet cloth. So when God desires to show the real reason Joel is saying this prophecy, he's going to bring out this diamond that's going to begin to illuminate as he explains himself to the people in light of this day of the Lord. Because the point of explaining this day is not so that you would know you're eventually going to suffer for it, but it's actually so that you would prepare for it and that you would consequently avoid it. That you would be there and not punished. That you would be there and you would witness God executing his judgment on the guilty and recognizing that you are not going to suffer. So how is he going to do this? That's what we're going to get into for the rest of our time. Because Joel pivots massively in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, and that's where we're going to do a little bit of breaking down. This is now setting the tables done. We've done a bit of real talk. Now we're going to eat. Okay, now we're going to feast on this meal. And it starts with God's promise to his people in verse 12, when he says this, Yet even now. That is, yet, even amongst this description of the worst day that the world will ever witness since the flood, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Return to me. Now, we understand that word return 
But what you might not understand is its connection with another word you probably know well, which is repent. You know, repentance, the idea of feeling bad for something and wanting to be forgiven for something and doing everything necessary to do that. That's all true, but that's not what repentance actually means, literally means. What repentance literally means is a turning. It's the same word as return. It is a turning away from something and towards something else. And so what repentance is, is recognizing the path of sin and how you should not be on it and turning back towards God. And God is awakening the people to this in light of this terrible atrocity to do a 180 and come back to him. So his whole point is the means by which they would come back to him. And he makes it very simple for us in two things. He tells us the way you prepare to return to me is to rend your heart and to recognize your God. And these won't take super long to go through, to rend your heart and to recognize your God. To rend your heart is mentioned uh, right away in verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What is he talking about? To rend your hearts and not your garments. What he's talking about, the idea with rending, is tearing. When he says, rend your garments, that actually is something that makes sense. It's a, a tearing, a breaking, specifically in an emotional display of agony or suffering. If you read enough of the Old Testament, it comes up a lot, this Middle Eastern tradition, when something is terrible, people will lament, they'll be sad, basically, in sackcloth and ashes, and they'll rend their garments. They'll tear them off in this grand display of pain. But the problem is that Joel is saying, God needs you to do that. But you are trying to rend, you're trying to make this display on the outside. And God is demanding, insisting, pleading with the people that the display is one, not outwardly, but inwardly. One that starts with the heart. One of the best places you can go in the whole Bible to understand this concept is Psalm 51, in which David pleads to God in repentance. We can't read the whole thing, but I can read to you at least two verses in verse 16 and 17, in which David is expressing his repentance when he says this. You, that is David to God, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, O oh God, will not despise. The sacrifice that God is looking for is one of a heart in turmoil, not a display of fake turmoil. And that is a requirement that's very interestingly mentioned in another part of the Bible you guys probably know. I'm going to read it. And you tell me if you recognize it, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who says this? Jesus. Exactly. David says something that Jesus says a couple thousand years later. And the reason is because what Jesus and David are understanding is the number one requirement to returning back to God is understanding you have nothing to give God. There is nothing 
in us that God finds worthy in a way that he would say, got to have them on my team. God still has a requirement, but it's different. It is recognizing this. I need God because I don't have anything to give God. I need his help to get out of this day that's coming, but I have nothing to offer him. And God says, that's what you offer me. You offer me your dependence. And you offer me your repentance when you refuse that anything in this world would be worthy of the glory and majesty that only you deserve. That is what fuels repentance. That is the regret that only God can understand. Because in reality, repentance is really only you before God. There's this really cool scene where Israel is looking for a king. God doesn't want him to have a king, but he allows them to decide how that's going to go down. And he sends his prophet Samuel to go and pick a king. And he goes to this man named Jesse, who has a whole bunch of sons. And he keeps looking and saying, all of these sons look good for a king. They're all big. They're all strong. They'd be good kings. And God tells Samuel this. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The kind of requirements that God is looking for is one that inwardly cares about the plans and purposes of God and not just doing it with our outward actions. Paul mentioned something very similar in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, where he says this, godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So this is the contrast that Paul has. We have worldly sorrow, we have godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow means nothing. Godly sorrow means everything. And that's actually very interesting for our study in Joel for this reason. In the same way that Paul is contrasting worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, Joel is contrasting this worldly day of disaster and this God-sent day of disaster. Worldly sorrow, worldly disaster, not important. Godly sorrow, godly disaster. Very, very important. This is the point. We get so wrapped up in what's going on around us that we do everything it takes, and especially in our prayers to God, and I will 100% admit with you guys, I'm in the exact same boat in this, that we want God to fix everything now. And the point in God telling us about the future is this. This situation... I can deal with. This situation is fixed in the blink of an eye. What is not fixed so easily is man trying to fix their hearts and therefore escape the disaster I'm bringing upon them. That is the problem. And the problem is that we get so distracted by what's going on now that we don't care about what's going on later. And when things are going on now, we pretend like they're not a big deal. This is the problem Jeremiah the prophet has 200 years later when false prophets come at this terrible time in the history of God's people sinning so egregiously, so terribly against God. And he says, Jeremiah speaking of these false prophets, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is the point. It's like someone telling you they have cancer and us thinking we fix the problem by putting a lot of band-aids on it. 
And the reality is we're not fixing anything. So in our present situations, we either get extremely obsessed over them or we pretend like they just don't exist. And either one is a ignorance of the inward problem of sin in our own hearts that is going to lead us to being punished on the day of the Lord. This is the cool thing, though. This is the cool thing that turns us around from this place of desperation and terrible sadness before God, which is, did you know that God cares so much more about your future than you do? So much more. Because God doesn't just care about providing for you now, which he does. But he also cares about where you are going to be for eternity. And his warning and his expression that you need to repent of your sins to be with him is him graciously extending himself as a demonstration that he cares where you are. He does not desire or take a delight in your destruction and your punishment. He does not. He does desire that people would come to him. And the greatest way that he could do that is not only tell them of the requirement of repentance, but also to simply shine that light on that diamond, on that black velvet cloth, and illuminate why people would want to come to him. He calls the people to recognize their God, the second thing, to recognize their God. And he does that by just explaining who he is. It is a lot easier to repent if you understand how good God is. And he explains that starting in verse 13. He says he is gracious and merciful. It means that God delights in not punishing people when they deserve to be punished and giving good gifts to people who don't deserve them. Paul actually mentions this in Romans chapter 2, verses 4, in a very helpful way to explain why God would explain his character to people in terms of repentance. He says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. You know, when God shines the light of his glory and his splendor and how good he is, how he's the greatest thing in this entire world, he's explaining that it is like moths going to a fly zapper. They can't help but go towards that light and experience that goodness. That is what God does for repentant people is they understand how good and gracious God is and they can't help but want to go towards him. So he gives reason after reason as to why we'd want to repent towards this God. He continues, he says, he's slow to anger. You know what that means, slow to anger? The way it's described in Hebrew is being long of nose. Can anyone think for a sec why long of nose means slow to anger? Why why it means long of nose? Anyone have a guess? kind of tricky. This is the reason. When you get mad, maybe not you, but some people, what do you do? There are some people who go, right? They just like hold, just can control themselves, right? The point of God being long of nose is that he's got a lot of nose to breathe up a lot of patience. And that's important. That's a vivid illustration because God says in the Psalms that he is angry at the wicked every day. All of our sin is before him every single day. But he's slow to anger. Why is that? 
Part of it is because we think that God is extremely slow to answer our prayers. God is just sleeping on the job. He is not helping me with the things I need. And I'm not talking about things that you feel like you need, but you don't. I'm not talking about he's impatient with us when we want our Nintendo Switch or we want our nail polish, whatever it is. I'm saying we get frustrated with God when I have problems with my family or my friends, or I have problems with school, things that are legit. And God changes the focus to say this, you know what I'm actually slow to do? I'm not slow to answer your prayers. I'm slow to punish you. I'm slow to demonstrate my retribution on all mankind. You know why? Because I want more people to come to me. And this day I'm saying is near and imminent. It could come any time, but you know why it hasn't come right now? Because I want you to repent and I want you to be saved from that day. That is why God says he is slow to anger. That is why the opportunity to share the gospel to people who don't know it is always on the table. Because God is giving you time. And he is giving each one of us time to understand if we really desire to embrace the God who has been so patient with us and has been so gracious and merciful to us and has offered us so, so, so much. That's why on your reading plan that Exodus 19 passage is there because God constantly gave the people so many chances to come back to him. He gave the people so many chances to come back to them and like we've read before in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that is because they're examples for us. These are all expressions of how God desires to stop this disaster to come for us. And that would be on the other side of the tracks. And that our repentance would lead to salvation. And that's what he explains at the very end of verse 13. He says that he relents over disaster because he is abounding in steadfast love. Do you know what that means? Abounding in steadfast love? Well, first of all, let me tell you this. It is mentioned 245 times in the Bible. 245 times. This is the defining quality of God, which is faithfulness. No matter how many times we keep turning to sin and ignoring God, he will absolutely never turn away from you. It is not in his character to give up on his people because he cares about where they're going. And that's why he says he relents over disaster. We don't have time to go into every single verse in Joel that he talks about it, but the very beautiful thing about the book of Joel is no matter how much time he spends over explaining this disaster that's supposed to come on the people, he also spends an equal amount of time talking about how all of those things are going to be reversed. And the day of the Lord, the cows are freaking out. It's one of my favorite examples in verse 22, the cows are freaking out. And you know what he says? In chapter two, the cows can't stop mooing because they have so much food to eat. Before the ground seven times was described as being dried up, now the rains, the early rain and the latter rain, it all comes because God can't help but bringing the sustenance that his creation and his people need. And he ends it in verse 27, summing it up by saying, you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord, your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. The point is that God is showing that he takes 
sweet, deep delight in giving gifts to his people, giving gifts to his people. This is what's really interesting when he ends in verse 14 after our section in chapter two, verses 14, when Joel seems to throw out this question, who knows, who knows? He says, who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Now, why does he end it with a question? Why does he make it seem like it's not a guarantee that God is going to be gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and relenting over disaster? Isn't that going to happen? And the point is that it is going to happen for those who he grants repentance to and those who are provided with the means to come back to him. But that's God's to give. We don't know in terms of being able to control and demand God to save us, but God knows and God desires to. And though he has the freedom and sovereignty to determine who will come to him, he has freely given it to us. So why do I say us? Let me, let me point this to the last verse in Joel that we'll look at. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Joel 3, verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. This sounds like the scary day of the Lord stuff that we began the sermon talking about. But then it switches, and he says this, but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. There's one other gift that God wants to bring attention to, and it sounds like the gift is security. It sounds like the gift is security. It's comfort. It's safety from this day of the Lord. It's actually not, because the point is that that is a consequence of the real gift, which is God himself. The real gift is God, who is security and a refuge to his people. The greatest gift that God offers to his people is not escaping destruction. It is that instead they come to relationship with him. And this is where we'll end tonight. Go over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, it might take you a sec to get over there. Acts chapter 2. At the end of the Gospels, Christ is crucified. And once he dies, he's buried for three days, and he rose again to prove that death could not hold him, to prove that he had conquered death and may therefore offer the freedom from death that all men need. And as a result, he comes to his disciples and apostles and tells them, I'm going to give you a gift. And he leaves. A few weeks, a few months later, as the people are gathered for a prayer meeting, and as they are celebrating together on a day called Pentecost, they all begin to speak languages they had not spoken before and begin explaining the mighty works of God to each other. And some people around seeing this say this, they have been partying last night and they are wasted. They are absolutely plastered out of their minds. That's why they're being weird. And out of deep love and zeal for the Lord, Peter leaps to his feet and he begins to preach. And he opens that sermon by saying this, these people are not drunk. You know how I know? Because this is exactly 
what the prophet Joel said would happen. Joel said 800 years ago, I had to think about that, 800, 900 years ago that this day would come. And it would be an expression of how God is going to give himself to his people. He says this, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who comes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God used the prophet Joel to say a message about how God is going to give us a spirit, his very self that would illuminate who God is to us, change our desires that we would be able to repent, return to God and be expectant of the day of the Lord because that is also the day where we will be with him forever. That is what this giving means. And it was such an important message that the very first sermon, the very first sermon after Christ rose was based on the book of Joel not only in the content of the sermon, but in the actual historical moment. And it's making a point. Looking at scary texts is not always fun, okay? It's not. It's true. It is hard to spend time in the Bible when these terrifying displays take place. But every time those happen... It is a demonstration of God presenting that black cloth to then bring himself out, this diamond sparkling brightly against this backdrop that we would know two times, three times, four times, ten times more than before how good God is to his people. And even Joel understands that in explaining this terrifying day, it will lead as well to a better day in which we are not going to be punished and which we are not going to face the judgment of God because he has something better for us. And what is better for us is through repentance and through a recognition of God by the Holy Spirit, we would come to him. And from now till eternity, we would wait in longing expectation for the day that we get to spend forever with him. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. Just relationship with God forever. Let's pray. Lord, it is, it is very hard as just mortal human beings to try and unpack your word in a way that we would understand these very dark pictures of the Bible. How can we be excited? How can we enjoy these descriptions and these depictions of terrifying events, violence, chaos, and bloodshed, how on earth can we find joy in these things? The reason is because, God, you have demonstrated who you are through our salvation in those moments. 
no matter how hard life gets, we will escape the judgment that we deserve because we love sin. But through a new heart that you have rendered in us, you have caused us to repent. Through the recognition of your son, Christ, who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, that we would not be punished for sin and that we would meet the righteous requirement that you deserve, that we would, as guilt-stained human beings, have our filthy clothes replaced by robes of white, stainless and pure before your sight, that you would welcome us into your kingdom. Let that thought and the thought of your beauty help us to understand the hard parts of the Bible and let them, Lord, lead us to greater and deeper appreciation for your mercy and your grace towards us. Let us honor you for everything you are and let us apply these truths in our lives. And we thank you for this and pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys. Thank you very, very much for a particularly tricky thing to understand in the Bible. I, I understand it's not easy, but now we're going to break off into small groups. And if you have more questions and more things to discuss, we can talk about them in the small groups. So your leaders are there. You can meet. And it is 947. So right around 930 we'll be finished.